0: Welcome to Deeper, a podcast of Wollongong Baptist Church. The podcast aims to follow the sermon series and to take our congregation deeper into God's Word. As always, it is wonderful to have you listening. I am Sarah Leffley, and I'm here with Pastor Mark Roberts. How are you, Mark?
1: I'm well, thank you. How are
0: you? Yeah, I'm all right. My family's on the Ferris wheel of sickness, so... Well, maybe you should call it a train. they like, get off the, the sickness merry, train and the back on the next station. Yeah, yeah. merry-go-round of sickness, yeah. that's a good one. Um, but we're all no, right. Ironically,
1: you wouldn't want to be on any of those things no, if you were sick. That no. would probably be worth Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That's no fun.
0: Um, but it means that I missed out on the prayer and praise night. I'm assuming you didn't.
1: <laughs> I did not. I was there. Tell us about running. it. Was it good? It was very positive. Yeah, it was lovely to um, – it's always a joy to get to sing and spend more time – uh, praying um, with God's people. We actually spent quite a bit of time last night reflecting on the Job series and sort of committing some of the learnings that we've had over the course of the, the term to God and asking God to, to shape us in light of the things we've learned. That was just super valuable. It's been a happy coincidence that we've run the prayer and praise nights towards the end of the term for the last two terms and that's been part of what we've done at the prayer and praise nights, just to spend time sort of reflecting and and committing these things to the Lord. And I think that's a massively valuable thing to do so we may continue to do that in the future it's been it's been great one of my joys um at the prayer and praise nights for the last two terms as well is we've closed the thing by singing the doxology uh a cappella uh with you know the folks in the room which is not you know we are not a very traditional church in that sense not much liturgy to speak of but um you know this it's a a, a tradition that connects us to Christians for centuries doing this same practice. It's not at all part of my Christian experience. Like I've never been a part of a church that's done that, but it's been really delightful. It's so lovely just to hear the voices of God's people declaring his praise and his worth. And um, anyway, we may perhaps I should never attend. I could ruin that experience oh, <laughs> for a no, lot of no, people
0: no. singing acapella.
1: Is, <laughs> I, mean, I, 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 I think that um, in a room full of god's people who are all singing something kind of miraculous happens that mm. like even if there are people who are singing off key and i'm often one of them that those voices kind of get swallowed up and fill in the gaps of you know and there ends up being this kind of beautiful harmony that's unlike anything i've ever experienced and
0: it's a joyful noise for the it Lord. really
1: is yeah if you haven't you know experienced some of that come along to these things They're they're so encouraging
0: yeah. It was a regular part of um, the experience of a church I attended for a little while okay. with Ben before we were married, the Sutherland Presbyterian Reform Church. And ah. I just was amazed by how much biblical truth was remembered, mm. um, how much Bible these people knew yeah. from
1: these just singing. these
0: practices. yeah. yeah. And I, I think there's real value in that. Yeah, that's meditation, isn't yeah. it? I yeah. think that's
1: wonderful. There's great wisdom in doing things that way, I think.
0: So well done for starting... A somewhat bizarre initiative. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> see we'll see if it sticks. We'll see if it sticks. I also like this idea of reflecting on the whole book of Job. Mm. This is my last chance to talk to you about Job. It is. Um, what's the one thing that you're going to hold on to, or one thing you've learnt?
1: Yeah. This series. Um, one of the things that uh, I think has surprised me over the course of this series is um, how helpful the book of Job has been yeah. for people in our church. I've been quite public about saying that I've approached this preaching series with great trepidation because I was like, oh, boy, this is a hard part of the Bible. It's confronting. And, oh, is this just going to be upsetting for people and that sort of thing? But actually, um, none of us were expecting the amount of um, little windows into people's lives that we have been privy to where the book of Job has been balm for their soul. Definitely. it's, It's been um, a great privilege as a pastor to be involved in a lot of things over the course of this term for people who are going through great wrestles and great struggles and great suffering at the moment and uh, seeing Job and the, even the questions that are being wrestled with and, and the glimpses of God's character that we're getting and the the hope of restoration that we're looking forward to and all those sort of things actually really ministering to people um, that's been wonderful we are so thankful to God for that over the course of this term What what it has taught me I think is that um, we probably need to be more proactive in talking about suffering and having opportunities to minister to one another in our suffering than perhaps we, we are doing in a regular course of a year, I yes. think. Um, you know uh, uh, over the course of 52 weeks at church you know the topic of suffering may come up you know on average once twice three times maybe but to have a, a whole focus like this book of job for the whole term around it has just given people opportunity to work through things and i think maybe we need to to look at finding ways to do that in the life of our church because suffering is ubiquitous that's been one of the things that that i think job has forced us to wrestle with and uh god's design for his people is that we would carry one another's burdens and so to give us opportunity to get alongside one another pray for each other love one another encourage one another that's been really good and i've been so pleasantly surprised by that god's been very yeah. gracious in answering the prayers of uh, many who are leading up to this uh, this series so um yeah i think there's there's definite lessons there for how we we think into this space uh, on an ongoing kind of way
0: I um, really like that idea of creating a space to talk about suffering deliberately because yeah. I know that I don't mind being vulnerable and talking about suffering, but I do like to be prepared that that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I, I might yeah. not feel comfortable to do that in morning tea after yeah. a church service, yeah. but if I know that I'm coming to an event yeah. where we are going to deliberately talk about suffering and in, and carry each other's burdens, then yeah. I think I would be willing to open, willing up. To open up Yeah, that I think that's situation. true for a lot of people. Yeah. So. Preparation is helpful. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to say that I think the thing that I'm going to take away most is from your sermon on Sunday. Oh, okay. um, I was just really struck by um, the fact that God would have the conversation at all mm, with Job um, yes. while he refuses to answer the question yeah. or doesn't feel the need to answer Job's questions. yeah, He still turned up. Yeah.
1: I, it is an act of grace, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's been a real healing thing for me, I yeah. think, the idea that God... Turn up anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is very easy to read these chapters that we looked at on Sunday and to feel a little bit dissatisfied with them. Mm. You're like, oh, he hasn't answered the questions. You know, I want more concrete knowledge and things. But the mere presence of God and His condescension to to speak, yeah, we. I think it's important that we don't overlook that.
0: Sure. Mm. All right. Well, let's get stuck in then. Mm, let's. Um, I think this first one's curly, but maybe you'll find it clearer and simple <laughs> more than I did anyway. Sure. I'm remembering back um, in the early parts of Job in our homeroom, yeah. uh home group, who we were talking about whether Job was sinning when he was crying out to God. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering what your take is when we get to the end of Job. Um, you know, he starts accusing God of injustice. Yes. Um, is he sinning and is his lack of humility and that posture of arrogance, is that sinful?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think is a really key question as you read the book of Job. Mm-hmm. And um, there there, are, there is an interpretive choice to make and commentators on the book of Job, um, you know, lar- you could largely, this is a wedge issue. You could divide commentators into two camps on what their take is on whether Job has sinned or not. All, all you know, uh, respectable commentators will acknowledge that Job is not sinless. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the description of him as righteous, upright, shunning evil, uh, fearing the Lord doesn't mean he's without sin, but it does mean characteristically he is a lawful man and um, a godly man. So we're not not debating that. We're debating whether in his suffering and in his searching he has crossed the line. Yes, yes. Yeah, some ca- some commentators will say no. Some will say yes. The tricky part of it, I think, is that there are some. Um, Some behaviours, some questions that he asks, uh, some some truths that he speaks in his suffering, which are very transparently good and right. And he displays a trust in God at a whole bunch of points in his suffering. And so if you if you just going on the basis of that evidence, you would say, no, well he's in the right. He's he hasn't let go of the sovereignty of God, so we must, you know, affirm his stance on things. However, I think I think Job is more of a he's a nuanced character than that. I don't think he is a caricature. I think he is a, a fully orbed person. So in a fully orbed person's experience, you can both know things that are true and declare things that are true, and then in the next minute forget those things and overstep yes. those bounds and, and disrespect God. And I think that's more of what we see going on in Job, that there are some things that he says along the way in his wrestling where, you know, <clears throat> in some sense, the two things that Job is holding on to the whole way through his suffering with the dialogue with the friends is he's holding on to his righteousness, his integrity. He knows he's certain about that and that never wavers. Yeah. And for a lot of the time, he's holding on to God's sovereign goodness and justice. And he's saying, "I don't know, I don't know how to make sense of what's going on in my life because i know those two things to be true what incidentally what he's lacking is a third kind of leg of that stool to stabilize it that, and which is part of what we see in our chapters this week which is that maybe God's got bigger purposes in his running of the world that you're not privy to. That a mystery is the third leg of, of that stool. And Job doesn't have that, so he feels very unstable. So in holding on to those two truths that he he does seem convinced of, his righteousness and God's sovereign justice and goodness, which one does he let go of? Yeah, It's probably God's sovereign justice that he starts to question at some points. And so I think um, when we come to these chapters uh, and we see God's attitude towards Job's words, I don't think it's possible to come to any other conclusion other than Job has overstepped the mark and sinned here. Um, God does seem to have, um, he says that Job is a fault finder. He He's he one who accuses God. He says that Job is questioning his justice, condemning God to justify himself Um, Those are categorically sinful things to do to the Almighty. And I think a plain reading of the text, particularly when you get to chapter 42, with Job's repentance, if you take that at face value, then I think, yes, we can pretty safely conclude that there is a, a sin that's been committed, a pride and arrogance, that sort of thing, a lack of humility. Um, Again, some commentators will try and sort of, depending on, you know, how they come down on this issue, there are ways of kind of reading Job's repentance there in chapter 42 in a less kind of repentance from sin kind of a manner and more of a relinquishing of my objections kind of a manner. um, I find that less than compelling. I think actually the plain reading of the text and, and consistent with what we see at numerous other points throughout is that Job has, is aware that he has sinned. He's overstepped the, me- the, the line and he's he's letting go. So uh, yeah, I, I I'm pretty comfortable saying that Job has sinned here, and um, I don't think that um, contradicts other things that have he's done that are true and right and good earlier in the book. And I don't think it it means that we can't learn from the goodness of his response at some points earlier in the book as well, like his patience and his trust in God and his acknowledgement of God having wisdom and him having none and that sort of thing. I think all those things are good and right. We can learn from them. I just don't think you want to copy Job at every single step of the process. I think there are some points where we have to critique him and not go as far as he goes.
0: Righteous but not sinless. Yes. Yep. I um, changed my mind as we went through the book of Job because in the early days I said, oh, I don't think he's sinning. But the more he defended himself to his friends, I saw that um, confidence in his own righteousness yeah. built. And like you said, the you know that second leg of the stool about God's sovereign justice that one weekend. And I thought, oh, no, I think maybe I'm changing my mind. Yeah. I'm shifting towards, yeah. yes, this does look yep. sinful. Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about some of the verses that you didn't have time for on Sunday. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, when God is describing the ostrich, mm. he doesn't paint a very pretty picture of his piece of his creation. <laughs> What's yeah. he trying to teach Job or us about the ostrich?
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating. This is chapter 39 from uh, verse 13. I think uh, what, this is the point at which God is taking the tour of the animal kingdom. And um, it, it's some peculiar examples that he he. Um, zooms in on, you might think that what he would do is try and talk about the most complex and impressive creatures. Yeah, or the and, strongest yes. or the biggest, And he, he does mention some of those yeah. earlier on, but at this point he seems to have moved on to um, a different kind of aspect of his creation, which is uh, even those creatures and even those things in God's creation that seem purposeless mm. or that seem uh, like self-defeating, God is saying, I'm even behind that. Job, so the ostrich who lays her eggs in the sand and then forgets where she laid them, and then they get trodden on, and you know what a foolish creature she's not been endowed with wisdom by God. I think the point is that um, as Job looks around this creation that seems wild, chaotic, unpredictable, nonsensical, God has designed uh, this place in such a way that it pleases Him that there is some purpose here. Uh, that he, he's not going to explain himself to Job, but he's God is not saying, oh, whoops, that one slipped through to the keeper. <laughs> he's saying, "Not even that, Job, even the, the the bit you think is so self-evidently wrong and dumb, no, I'm in control of that too. Um, yeah, it, it, one of my lecturers at SMBC when I was there, a guy named Kirk Patston, wrote his PhD on this passage, uh, particularly as it relates to what Uh, disability ministry and God's purposes in seemingly foolish and worthless and out of control elements of the creation, why people are born with disabilities. Hmm. There is is something quite profound to learn from this, that there is no element of God's creation that God is embarrassed by, that actually... In his profound wisdom and his plan for the universe, even the foolish ostrich is 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 a, is a creature that will bring him glory. So too, people with disabilities and and whatever other kind of fringe parts of the creation, we might think, uh, well, that's that's got no purpose, that's got no value. No, God sees value in this thing. So I think it, it, what God is doing here is a, it's still part of the humbling process to Job. It's giving him the perspective that he just he can't. He doesn't have the vantage point to assess uh, what God is doing in the world. And, uh, yeah, so he should, he should pipe down. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's achieving much of the same thing, but there's some very interesting lessons that I think we can draw from it.
0: Yeah, it, just seemed, it did seem baffling at first to point out such a bizarre creature. And yeah. I didn't even realize how foolish an ostrich was until I read <laughs> and this. And yeah, so I kind of got turn. more confused the more I read about the ostrich. Yeah, yeah. But it's good to know that God knows what he's doing with that's right with an animal that buries their eggs in the sea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm wondering now, you talked about the animal kingdom and then these creatures, the leviathan and yep. the behemoth. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about this kind of idea that they might be almost mythical in presentation. Yes. I'm wondering, are there other interpretations of that same scripture and are they worth investigating?
1: Yeah. Um, yes, there are. And yes, they are. <laughs> um, so there are largely three popular interpretations of uh, what's going on with the behemoth and leviathan. One is that they are simply the crocodile and the hippo, and that um, there's, you, you know, this is just God continuing his journey that he's done in chapter 39 with the animal kingdom. Well, here he's just kind of going to the animal kingdom par excellence. It's just the, you know, prime examples of of God's creations. Um, that's possible that it, it is that, although, as I said on Sunday, very briefly, there do seem to be fantastical descriptions baked into these creatures that are hard to reconcile Yeah, strictly. crocodiles breathing fire. Yeah. Like um, now, maybe that's poetic license. You can certainly argue that. Um, but I think um, we're perhaps trying to force the text to say something it's not trying to say at that point. Uh, so that's one option. Uh, I also think that the, the logic of um, these chapters – would lead me away from that interpretation, because why would if God has he's done the tour of creation, the skies, the seas, the land, he's done the tour of the animal kingdom, chapter thirty nine, he's paused for a break, he's then started to question Job about his justice of yes. the ruling of the universe. Why is he then going to go back to the animal kingdom and just make the same point he's already made? I think he's making a new point here, which leads me to believe this is not just kind of normal creatures. Another popular interpretation is that these are um, ancient creatures that are now extinct so mm-hmm. say a dinosaur or, or some other kind of ancient creatures that's somewhere between a you know modern crocodile and a, a dinosaur or something of that kind of nature that's certainly possible um, again though I think I want to ask the question well why it, it, I mean that that may be the case it may be that this is the creature that's being described but even if it is why is God showing job this creature and yes. I think the the key, thing that leads to the interpretation <clears throat> that I preached on Sunday is the beginning of chapter 40, where God challenges Job, hey, if you, you think I'm doing such a bad job at dispensing justice, you come and sit where I am and you run the universe for a day. You put, hum- you put prideful people in their place. You dispense punishment and see how you think it is. That seems to be what is guiding then these examples of Leviathan and Behemoth. And I think the point is, here are two examples, or perhaps one example, if you take my interpretation, of the th- the thing that seems to be most in opposition to God's order and mm. His His good universe, the chaos, the evil that's uncontainable and uncontrollable. God's saying, no, 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 no. Even those things are on my leash. Um, and so, I, I I think that it's a very legitimate theological um, launching point, if you like, to con- to to recognise what is true across Scripture that. Satan is not uh, free to do as he wills. He is constrained. The, the the wreaker of evil and havoc and chaos in the world, even he is on God's leash. And I, you know, I think that is a very strong biblical theme. So I'm not uh, backing down from uh, my interpretation. <laughs> I, th- I, I do think that that's what the author has in mind, reading it, that it uh, fits with those those larger descriptions of Satan as that kind of chaos monster uh, throughout scripture but at the end of the day it's not a hill i'm willing to die on those three interpretations a- actual animals or ancient you know dinosaurs etc or mythological references to other creation myth creatures from other cultures that god is demonstrating even he's got control over those it could be any of those things but the the the, the necessary. Question you have to ask in either of any of those cases is why. What is the lesson here that God's trying to teach? And I think it's about that His justice is is, has no limits.
0: Thank you. Um, I always find it helpful when we don't know the real details to just work out what the meaning is. I still do that, you know, with Genesis one when people argue about how long. It's just nice to go well. What do we know? Yes. God made it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God did it and it was good. I think that's... In that's, this case, what do we know? Yeah. God is sovereign.
1: I think there's a humility in that to, to kind of say, well, look, this is my interpretation. It, it may be wrong, but the the, the point of this is, is kind of not up for debate. Definitely.
0: Mm. Thank you. Um, this question makes me feel a little bit nervous to ask. Um, you did talk about if Leviathan and Behemoth are representing, you know, chaos and disorder and ultimately Satan. Um then that means that Satan is a creature of God. Mm. Um, why would God make a creature like Satan?
1: Mm. Um, I think the the only answer that we can arrive at is f- that God did this for his glory and for our good, by extension. Um, the The fact of the matter is that the Bible doesn't give us a, a nice, concise explanation about the origins of Satan and what God is doing with him and that sort of thing. There are some little hints uh, sprinkled throughout the Bible that uh, seem to suggest that Satan was an angel who uh, became prideful and sort of rebelled against God and then was cast down. And, uh, you know, there's a few, few little verses around the place that um, lead in that direction. Uh, so, you know, relatively comfortable to to believe that. But uh, just based on a, a broader systematic theology, we have to conclude that everything that is not God in creation is created by God. That that is the point of Genesis one, yes. as you just talked about, making very clear that there is only the triune God who is eternal, and everything else began, including Satan. So it's partly it's just a logical conclusion from the way that the Bible presents God as creator. Yeah. But why has He done that? Um, in some senses, we can we can kind of only speculate. Um, my sense of it is that there is that god is is writing a story in the history of the earth history of the universe which is going to be all the more glorious and better for there being shades of dark in the story there you know if you if you asked a painter to make a beautiful picture and you only gave them the color white to work with here's a canvas and a tin of white paint go and paint me a beautiful picture uh well you're gonna have a hard time doing anything that's gonna bring beauty and that's gonna inspire you're just gonna see white nothing but but if you give them shades of dark to work with well then there can be contrast there can be movement there can be actually things that come off the canvas that sort of thing and I guess my sense is and how I've often reconciled this for myself and lived at peace with this that God is writing a story in this universe that I'm I can't see the full canvas and I do but from my little vantage point I can see some darkness and some light occasionally but as I start to step back and in eternity when I see the whole thing I will be able to see what will, what is the most glorious picture that could ever be painted and that that's that's kind of why Satan is here in a sense that's why there is sin and evil in the world and not just Nothing but white from here on, you know um, because God wants to display his glory, we do have confidence, of course, in uh, one John three, we read that the um, the Son of man appeared to destroy the devil's work, and mm-hmm. so there does seem to be something purposeful about god's plan of salvation in sending his son to destroy. Uh, the the darkness that Satan is wielding and control and influencing and that sort of thing. So with the little bit of information we have, that's kind of where I land. I want to be confident of that and I want to trust that God is doing something beautiful for his glory and for our good um, in allowing Satan on this leash and not just wiping him out the moment that he rebelled against him.
0: We'll have to long for that day when we see the canvas, yeah. I think, because it can be hard when you're um, on the canvas, you know, being covered over by a bit of black rather yeah. than enjoying the light. But, yep. yeah, there is a real hope that we will one day see that eternal perspective, yeah. isn't
1: there? Yeah, there is. Yep.
0: Um, that kind of touches on the next question a little bit. Um, you know, if if death and chaos and evil and all those things operating under God's sovereignty, on God's leash, mm. how do we reconcile a notion of a God who is sovereign and even directing evil Um, with a God who doesn't author evil?
1: It's a million-dollar question, Sarah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that that really is in some ways the biggest question that the book of Job is going to leave us with and not actually resolve. Um, Yeah, it's a a very tricky question. Uh, You know, so much ink has been spilled trying to answer that question theologically, Um, and so I'm probably not going to be able to do justice to it in a couple of minutes here. Um, but I guess what I will say is that the, the God's sovereignty over evil and yet not being the author of evil are, again, there, there are two things there that we really want to hold on both uh, tightly to. Um, how can they both be true? How can we talk about them in a way that doesn't accuse God of being uh, at fault for evil or li- morally liable for evil, yeah. that sort of thing? Nevertheless, um, admitting that he is sovereign over this, in control of this, has purposes in this. Very tricky. Um, to be honest, I think any word, any language that we pick to try and talk about this is going to be deficient in some um, some sense. So if you want to talk about God be- not being the author of evil, that's okay because that's quite biblical kind of a language there. Mm. Uh, but so what can we say? Can we say that God controls evil? God causes evil? He decrees it. He ordains it. Uh, he permits it. He plans it. Predestines it. He wills it. You know, all of these kind of words that we might use to talk about it uh, are very tricky because uh, they have the, the meaning of those words has changed over time. Some theologians five hundred years ago were quite happy to talk about God authoring. Uh, whereas today we feel kind of a bit uncomfortable with that. They might have been happy to talk about God causing evil, but we feel a little bit uncomfortable about that. So, you know, historically, it's tricky to pin down a nice, kind of some nice language to explain this. But I think what we, what we must, uh, as we try and work this out, what we must try and hold on to is um, we want to, be very careful not to suggest that there is anything that goes on in God's world that is outside of His will or outside of His control. Um, the, the Bible just won't let you get away with that. It's um, a
0: dissatisfying God anyway, isn't it, it that, it that is. doesn't have those things that's under right. His control.
1: F- yeah, what a, as a thought experiment, the, the idea that there there may be some tragedy that happens in this world that God failed to control, mm. that's a way more terrifying prospect than the prospect of no, God is sovereign even in this moment over this, these events. So we certainly don't want to go down that road, um, which is, I think, why we've got – I think maybe the the um, the place where the rubber hits the road here for us is around the language of permitting evil. God permits mm. evil to happen, which is a tempting kind of a language to use, partly because – at the beginning of the book of Job, we see God kind of giving permission to Satan to do these things. But that's not to say that God is now sort of, he's washed his hands of it. that's, That's what we've got to be careful of. We're not, we don't want to say, well, God has given Satan a little bit of dominion here. And so off he goes, God's not responsible. Even if that is what's happened, God is still responsible. He caused it. He allowed it. He's, he, you know, is the root cause of this kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, we it's, it's very tricky to hold these two mm. things in tension. John Calvin had a way of talking about this where he talked about the remote cause and the proximate cause of evil. So the proximate cause would be the sinful human being who went and killed that other person, and that person is morally responsible and answerable to God for what they've done. But Calvin would talk about the remote cause still being the sovereign will of God here. And the difference between those two things means that uh, – morally it's the person who's responsible for the proximate cause who has done evil and committed evil. Nevertheless, God is still sovereign in this anyway, he's trying to sort of resolve this tension. It doesn't matter how what kind of language you come up with to do this, there is a tension there that that's that's very hard to um, to resolve. Again, kind of going back to that that imagery of God as the painter painting a beautiful story. Theologians have, I think, the best way to resolve this tension or to live with this tension is through the kind of the metaphor of an author writing a story. And so um, a number of theologians have sort of entertained this thought experiment of saying, um, okay, you read Macbeth – and who is responsible for killing Duncan? Is it Macbeth or is it Shakespeare? Mm. Who's who's responsible? It's kind of a nonsense to hold Shakespeare, the author, morally responsible for the death of the character in the story. That's you know, that's just not how we talk about reality, right? We talk about Macbeth doing this, and actually, by Macbeth taking this evil action, the story of Macbeth is far more glorious for there being um, such a, a tragedy and a. And a a clear sin in the story sort of thing. And so I, I think that kind of language of God is the author here and within his story, the characters of the story are responsible for their actions. Nevertheless, it's God's story. I think that is maybe a helpful framework for um, yeah, explaining sort of how we live with these things. And I think that maybe the closest evidence you get of that showing up in scripture is in the story of Joseph, where, you know, he, terrible things happen to Joseph and the brothers are clearly, you know, the ones who are morally responsible for their actions. And yet Joseph can reflect at the end of the story with a bit of hindsight and say, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. God is still writing the story here and he's bringing good out of this thing, even though hardship and tragedy, you know, befell me kind of thing. So that helps me to kind of live with those two things, but I don't think we can ever fully resolve it, but we, we must cling to the truth, that God is not morally responsible for evil. He's not liable for uh, the evil and the sin that happens in the world. Nevertheless, He's he hasn't taken his hands off the wheel either. Yep.
0: Um, I think that's a really helpful reminder because I'm conscious that as we've gone through Job, I get more and more convicted of God's sovereignty over evil and the way he uses evil for his purposes but in my pride, I then sometimes think, well, you wrote this into my story, God. Mm. It's not my fault. You wrote this into my story. And that's yeah. that's where I've taken that idea way too far because I've, yeah. in my pride, taken off that moral responsibility. Yeah. It's, it is still it, my sin. And it's yeah. starting
1: to sound a little bit like the, quest, the sort of perhaps the presumptuous questions of Job at that mm, point. where does. That we, we want to step back from that line. Uh, For yeah. sure.
0: Um, and so maybe this is a good chance for me to ask you about how I personally and other people can can maintain that posture of humility mm. um, when we are casting our burdens on God. What, what do you – what can you advise? What can you offer there?
1: Yeah. Um, part of, uh, I think, what God is doing for Job in these chapters is trying to remind him of some very basic truths of which he can be certain and which should be enough for him. And um, – it truths that, you know, God is more powerful, more wise than Job can comprehend, that God is purposefully at work in his world, even when Job can't see it, those sort of things. And Job does come to rest in those things. We living this side of the cross have received—God has pulled the curtain back even a little bit further for us. And so there is more than that we know and that we can be certain of as believers than Job was able to. So we can see— the trajectory of the universe that Ephesians one, God is working all things together under the headship of Christ. That that's where the, the story is going. We can know that with confidence. We can know Romans eight that God is at work in all things for the good of those that love Him. There are, there is more about God's working in the universe that He's chosen to reveal to us uh, that we can take solace in and remind ourselves of, and say, Yes, I will trust you in this God. And even if you you haven't revealed the details of how this is going to play out in my specific suffering and my specific circumstance. I trust your promises enough to know that that's what's going on. We can certainly do that. But I think the the advice of the New Testament for us in our sorrow and our suffering and our persecution and all those things is to look to Christ. I think that's the, the place where we are to fix our hope and fix our eyes, knowing that uh, as we look to Christ, we can see with certainty the demonstration of God's undying love for us and His determination to have us and to make us His own. Whatever other questions we may have and uncertainties and wrestles and doubts that that may come our way, we can look at Jesus and never need to question the love of our Father for us. And that is more than enough for us, isn't it? Um, More than that, we can see the prime example in the sending of God's Son the proof positive that God does work in the darkest situations to bring about his good purposes, the death of the Son of God, the darkest day in the universe, brought about the greatest salvation uh, to mankind, um, that seems to be um, part of the reason why, I think, God has chosen to save us this way through um, through darkness into light so that as we keep walking through in this life, through darkness we can know that it leads to light so i think as we fix our eyes on jesus there is so much reassurance for us that we can trust god in this that he is going to get us through this that it is all going to work out in the end christ has been raised from the dead Uh, we know how the story ends Um, and so i think that's that's my that i think that hope that's the advice that uh, we finish the book of job on next week as well is that um fixing our eyes on jesus is the is the only way really to to keep persevering and keep walking through whatever we're going through
0: and it's a great way to finish here today that's for sure um good to know that there'll be a lot of unanswered questions but the answer that we find in jesus is enough
1: yeah that's right
0: well thank you so much and thank you also, um, producer Mike Tamp gave us a lesson today on dry rooms and reverberations. And it's nice to know just how much work goes into this podcast. Thank you that you're always fiddling and, and fixing and making us sound more coherent than I'm sure we are. Um, please join us again next week for the very last Sermon Job. This has been a Wollongong Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services at our website, wollongongbaptist.org.